Welcome to Frost Sessions, the Frost School of Music's official podcast. On this episode, two world-renowned horn players, Frost faculty member Rick Todd and Frost alumnus John Dixon, share their professional experience working in the music and film industry. They reveal their ingenious thought process on how to think like a horn player. They talk about the importance of being your own teacher and why you should always remain humble. Thank you for joining us, and remember to stay tuned to Frost Sessions. Greetings, everybody. Uh, my name is Richard Todd, and I am the current horn professor at the Frost School of Music at the University of Miami. And uh, we're doing a podcast today with a, um, with a truly, truly amazing musician. Um, somebody who I've known for, what, 25 years? Uh, 28, officially. Wow, 28 years. <laughs> and... and um, he is a he, he's a multi-talented kind of guy, exactly the kind of musician that I love because whatever he touches, he excels at. And um, he, he looks at music the same way that I do, which is the same way that the Frost School of Music does. And when I was asked to kind of put one of these uh, together, uh, John was the first person that I thought of because um, of, of what he stands for as an artist and as a musician but also as, a, as an alum of uh, what, at, at, not at that time, but it is now, he's an alum of the Frost School of Music. He got his master's here in media writing and, and composition and production. He got his undergraduate degree at Stephen F. Austin University in piano and composition. And he plays a little horn on the side too, which is pretty amazing. And I actually have a video we're gonna share as this goes on. But I want to introduce everybody to Mr. John Dixon. Hey, everybody. Nice to meet you. Virtually meet you. And uh, it's really cool to be here. I'm, I'm uh, really tickled that you are there at Miami. I think that's you're such a boon to them because it, your career reflects everything I remember about my experience at the, at the university is that you you study music. Everybody wants to be an artist. Everybody wants to express themselves and all that but that Miami helps you focus that in a way that you can actually make a living doing it that you can actually get your wares out to the world and you know improve humanity's existence by actually sharing your art instead of kind of keeping it under a under a bush you know like the way a lot of people do I, I think the school the mandate at the school is really important that everybody should be able to to turn this into a way to make a living, not only a way to, way to make an art. And um, uh, that's why I chose Miami in the first place years ago. Um, I really looked around and um, I'm glad to see they're still doing it. Uh, Shelley's a friend of mine, the uh, Dean Berg there, and I know he's just doing a, a fantastic job at the school. and. He's bringing in all the right people. It's just so I'm I'm happy to be here. Fun to talk with you. So, um, John, the uh, the the kind of thematic idea I had for this uh, was called playing outside the box, which is something that uh, you've done a lot of. Something that I've tried to do a lot of, and uh, you know, it, it's hard to it's hard to put you into you know, into a, into a, a category because there are just too many categories. And that's what I absolutely love about, about, you know, you as an artist and you, what I love was in, in your, um, in your bio, which is off of your website, uh, johndixonmusic.com. Um, you, uh, you re you related um, that music was always something that was in your, family from the time you were really, really young. And what was it you said? It was Turandot and Corn Checks, the Breakfast of Champions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my, my dad controlled the record player mostly in the mornings. Uh, sometimes mom would overrule him and want something a little more laid back to listen to. We called it screeching and blasting because that's that was the alarm in the morning was usually opera, something dramatic. And, and dad was a... Um, political science professor and a, and a writer and just a brilliant guy for years and years, but he was a church choir tenor and quite a good one. And um, mom has a lovely voice and has a great love for music. And 
so they, while they didn't do it professionally, it was always in the house and it was always really the, the good stuff. You know, I was lucky to grow up in an era when pop music was exploding into some really cool um, ways. R and B became a big thing. Um, so it could be opera one morning, Dionne Warwick, fifth dimension, uh, late Beatles, but usually it would, it would be more classical. So that was breakfast. Wow. Cool. Um, can you remember the first album you ever got? Yes. Uh, the fir- I, I can remember the first album I ever paid for. I'll say that. The first album I ever got was a kid's record my folks got me, I'm sure, because I had a lot of them. The first one I ever bought was, you remember K-Tel? Remember oh, sure. Uh, <laughs> it, it was called 20 Monster Hits. And wait, 10 more Monster Hits. And uh, it was advertised on television. It was, um, and I'm so glad I got it because I might have been hopelessly square uh, coming up musically if I hadn't. It was Woodstock. I got it as a kid. I was in elementary school. And uh, it was it was all artists who had performed at Woodstock. Wow. Uh, so I heard, in many cases, the only examples of those artists I ever had were, were those two records. But at least I had those. So I had a little Hendrix, a little Janis Joplin, a little, you know, because my folks didn't particularly listen to a lot of the pop music of the, the age. Their, their taste veered a little more, you know, legit than that. So that was my first one. Uh, my first jazz record that I remember, I think, was Conquistador. I think it was Maynard. I think really? Was, yeah. And uh, I loved Maynard Ferguson. And, uh, then, and I loved his uh, band. And then from there, I quickly went to Woody and Buddy and, and, you know, and Duke and Count. You know, I found big band music pretty early on. Um, and then... Uh, and then found Chick and Herbie. And so it's funny, I found the, the brass guys first and then the keyboard guys, even though that was my main. It's funny because I, I, I found the keyboard guys first. That makes more sense. That's yeah, my, my, uh, I, I seem to remember my first jazz record I ever bought, I think was something with Oscar Peterson. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'm, it was the trumpet that, that got to me first. And, um, and then I kind of went sideways through there. And I, the funny thing, I found Chick because he performed on one of Maynard's records. That's the first time I found him. Then I found him with Miles and everybody else. But I found him on uh, one of Maynard's records first. Oh, really? I'm not – God, I don't remember that. It I don't was, remember Chick um, with, I think it was the Vintage album. I think he performed on that. That's right. And then, he, of course, he played with, um, he played with Miles, was it on Bitches Brew? I think he was, his brew, he was on towards the last set of albums that Miles did before the, before the break. Right. So, um, and then I started discovering, you know, what, what he was about. And then here's Alba Zudi on his album and Jimmy Pugh. And so there was still, there was always a brass component for a lot of these guys for me early. It took me a little bit longer to go purely towards trio and jazz and solo piano and, and then you find Weather Report and Jocko and all those guys. And right. um, I worked at a record store uh, from my freshman year through my senior year, really. My, my side hustle while I was going to school was working in a music store. And um, I was in charge of the, ultimately of ordering albums for inventory. And so I would order stuff that I wanted. And I had an employee discount that was pretty good. And I would just set aside four albums worth of cash a week or more. And so every week I would go into work and I'd buy five or six more records. Do you still have them? I do. (laughs) I kind of wish I didn't. Yeah, I know. A lot of space. I know. I know. I still, I have 20, I, I measured about, I think something like 21 or 22 linear feet. Wow. Of LPs. Yeah, I don't have quite that many. I, I well, I'm older than you. Not that much older. Okay, <laughs> yeah, he's a lot older. I, uh, I gave a few away, you know, a number of years ago. I had my roommate out here in uh, L.A. when I first moved here. was a trumpet player that you knew, Nelson. Nelson, yeah. yeah. And he had two walls full 
of LPs, to, uh, three or 4,000, I think. And I learned from how unwieldy and ridiculous that was to, to be a little mindful that if you can let some of your collection go, let somebody else get something out of it, it's probably not a bad thing. Yeah, they're a lot bigger and heavier than baseball card collections. Yes, they are. And mouthpiece collections. Right. And besides, the LPs really don't fit into the spokes of your bike quite as well. <laughs> I know they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about – tell me a little bit. Um, tell, tell little bit. You, you grew up in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, what part of Texas? Uh, east Texas, except for a, a little – uh, time in Austin, I was in a town called Nacogdoches. Oh, Nacogdoches. Okay. Yeah, which is uh, not a not a big place. Um, they have a university there that kind of forms the core of what the the town is about. At least for my family, did because my folks were both there. Um, Thirty thousand people now, so less than that uh, when I was there. It's okay. a beautiful beautiful little town. It's in the woodsy part of Texas. You know, between if you could do kind of a boomerang shape between Houston and Dallas, it's, it's kind of right in the middle towards the East. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Towards Louisiana. Okay. And, um, and your, your primary instrument growing up was piano. Yeah. Right. And uh, out of that, uh, you went to, you went to undergraduate as a piano major and a composition major. Right. At that particular point, what did you, did you envision what you might be doing at, no. at, at that particular point? I was, I was not terribly, uh, I was focused on piano performance for a while because I really loved it. I did a lot of competitions in the, in the region um, and had done well with them. And um, the, the, the university there, Stephen F. Austin had uh, uh, my second year there. He came in luckily uh, a fabulous piano teacher. He was, uh, very young, he had uh, done very well in the uh, Chopin competition in Poland uh, a couple years before. A uh, real go-getter um, that had some uh, great insights in building technique, which uh, and and building very uh, free and easy technique, which helps you play more exciting repertoire. I I didn't um, I didn't ever think I wanted to be a concert pianist. I just, that's a very tough life and it, it doesn't take a genius to see it. You've got to really be driven uh, for that. But I love music and I began to love writing it and I didn't really have a, a, an idea of how I might focus that until I'd uh, been in college a handful of years and um, I love movie music. I, it was a good era for it. You know, that's the, in the eighties, a lot of, of our iconic scores uh, came out of the late 70s into the, into the early 80s. That was the um, kind of the rise of John Williams when he sort of took over the world of film music and Elmer was still out there and Jerry was still out there and, and Horner rose up during that era. And it was just a really, really great time for film music. And I begin to think, I, I think I want to aim that direction it at least gave me a, a light at the end of a very long tunnel so um by the time i was a senior i thought let's look for a place where i can prepare to maybe work on the more commercial end of music and like i said earlier that's why i, I ultimately picked miami because i was headed into like a composition master's degree which would have been fine too but that would have probably trained me to head more into academia yeah just by default so you end up at at miami you know now called the frost school yes and you know you you uh you kind of like saw you know you 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 saw what could be i guess right um, uh, yeah i i uh had spent a little time at berkeley as well i did one of their summer programs um not a particularly impressive program the way it was set up, but the atmosphere was very impressive. Um, I had really, really good teachers. I was just a kid, I was 19, uh, 19 or 20. And um, the faculty that was there in the summer was, uh, was terrific and Boston was fantastic. I really, that was one of my first 
lengthy times away from home. And um, first time with a very international student body. That was a new experience. Um, Boston is a great music town. There's live music everywhere. Um, that had given me a taste of what it's like to get out of the small town and expand your horizons. That's when I really started eating, eating up the jazz thing there because of the work I did at Boston. It was just seven, eight weeks. Um, that's when I got a real dose of uh, very high-end ear training, which ended up being one of the best things I ever did. Um, and so when I looked for grad schools, I, I didn't want to go back to Berkeley because there were other things about the program that didn't impress me quite as well. And, um, but I wanted something similar. I wanted a school that was acknowledging the fact that, sure, writing your 12-tone, uh, you know, four-movement chamber work would be a lovely thing to, to be able to make a living doing, but you might have to write uh, a soda jingle or a diaper jingle instead, <laughs> or in addition. And you need to know what that means, and you can't turn your nose up at anything. That You have to be willing to, to expand your skill set and write appropriately in different uh, areas and um, and set your your druthers aside in order to be able to do what somebody's willing to pay you for and then go work on your chamber symphony or whatever it is and the the Miami program plus the the engineering thing was nobody was close there I I would wager that's still possibly the case that nobody is close to what the Mueys do there but certainly then they were head and shoulders. So you could put your education to practical use at the school. And that's what my program was about. Write it, record it, write it, record it, write it, record it, you know, and, um, and very tight deadlines and, and um, some guidance. And then there were moments when you, which we were just told, just do it. We're not going to tell you how to do it. Just go figure it out. and We'll analyze it once you've, once you've done it. So um, it was a risk because I didn't know anything else about Miami at all, except that the weather was kind of hot and the kind of hot and the beaches were beautiful. So, yeah. Um, but it was a similar kind of thing, an international student body, which was very good. Um, and, um, since I had started, uh, horn, I also did the Sarasota music festival. Uh, I'd only been on horn about 18 months when I did that. And, uh, and there's Freudus and Greg Hustis, you know, two of the finest players to ever, to ever do it. And Freudus maybe the best music coach ever, um, really convinced me that even though I was new to it, uh, hang on to this instrument, you know, maybe this is something you can do down the line. And luckily Miami was looking to build that studio a little bit. So they gave me help on horn after just about two years of study, I got a full scholarship to Miami on horn. So it wouldn't happen anymore. They'd get a better player, but at the time <laughs> they, they kind of needed folks. So, well, I'll tell you, you know, th there may be a lot of people here that understand just how, um, how remarkable that is. Uh, but there's probably a lot of people that might not be aware of how remarkable that is. I mean, to, to be accepted into a, a, um, a, a major, major uh, a chamber music study environment um, and work with some of the best people in the world. I mean, people practice for 12, 13 years to, you know, 10 years or whatever it is to get into that. You know, most, I mean, I started playing the horn when I was, when I was uh, eight years old, you know, and, and I started the piano when I was four and, you know, to start when you're what, 19, 20, yeah. when, how old were you? I, between 19 and 20, I had a start and then it was aborted because I had um, abdominal surgery. I had my appendix out and I had a, 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 a an odd virus that mimicked perforated ulcer symptoms. It was a whole thing. So the semester I wanted to really get going on horn, I couldn't, I could no longer play. So I just set aside and, stop. And, then, yeah. and, then re, and then restart, you know, right. And my, my teacher, there was a guy named Charles Gavin, who's uh, still there, but I think he's retiring. Very young guy at the time, just a kid himself. And um, 
he he was so smart to not say come back later then when you can play and, and we'll start you over again. He said, okay, you're, you're new to horn, but you're not new to horn music and you want to move this along. He's, he was finishing up his doctorate he, and it was on uh, 20th century repertoire for the horn, new repertoire. He said, let's keep you in horn, even though you can't play right now. If you'll help me record these pieces for my thesis, I'll give you credit for horn lessons and, uh, I would play the accompaniments. He'd record the horn parts. He said, they, and the result is you're a round horn rep and we can talk about horn and you can start in, indoctrinating yourself towards that mindset, even though you're not tooting a horn, which is really very helpful because it, it, you have to think like a horn player. You can't just pick it up and, and blow. There's, it's a whole thing, you know, and there's so much repertoire and there's so much to know. Plus, he just gave me tapes and records. Here's Mahler. Here's Strauss. Here's this. Here's that. Here's Dale. Here's Allen. Here, you know, here's here are the guys you need to know. Here's the pieces you need to know. Here are the players you need to idolize. Um, it was a really great. It was a very smart way to start somebody because I might have, I might have decided to bail at that point. You know, I might have wow. just given up. So. So it's, it's really, that's really a testament to, um, you know, a, a natural gift to begin with. Um, it's a testament to your ear because you've got to have a killer ear in order to play the horn. You just have to. You <laughs> yes, you do. You have to, you know. And, um, you know, my old teacher, uh, who was Vince DeRosa, um, utilized that idea through a phrase he used to always tell us, which was, if you can sing it, you can play it. Hmm. And that was the, that was just kind of his, his, um, his shorthand version of, you know, if you can't hear it, you're in big trouble. Right. You know? Yeah. But if you can sing it, then you're a lot closer to being able to kind of get it there. Yeah. You know? And then and he played as a singer uh, as much as anybody who ever did it. He, he sang through the instrument. That was that was his that was his glory. That's what it was. Well, he developed. He had a better he had a better sense of developed air than I think anybody that ever played the instrument. Yeah. Just the the way that he developed how he put his air into the instrument and made that instrument just do anything he wanted it to do. Mm -hmm. Which is you know which I mean that's that's the foundation really of which that uh, that I kind of run my studio with is the idea that. Air comes first, de developing your air, developing and so on, and then everything comes out of that. Your technique, your your range, everything. Right. Um, but uh, uh, so so to, after less than two years of playing, you're at the Sarasota Cherry Music Festival. That's just mind-boggling. You, you people, you really don't know how mind-boggling that is. Well, I didn't take it by storm. I will say this: I, <laughs> they didn't name the building after me after I was there. I no, really, but, but the fact is, it was a scramble. <laughs> the fact is, you got you got in. Yeah, you went. You know, it was, I mean, it was a scramble, crazy. and and uh, there were so many good players there, and um, I, but Freudus and Greg were the two. Uh, people who had such an impact on me. It's, it's amazing what, because you're, you're not around them very long. So, you know, if, if teachers and players can influence you that well and that quickly uh, by just how they play and, and how they approach the instrument. And um, Freudus's thing, then the lecture she was already doing, which is so smart, was how to be your own teacher. Uh, and you say something in your uh, online course as well, the, the best teachers make themselves um, dispensable as soon as possible or something like that. You say, Unnecessary. Unnecessary. Yeah. Because you've got, Oh, I get it. I can, I can repeat and rotate, you know, through what I've been taught and, and keep the process going. And that was her, that was her whole rap, how to be your own teacher. You're out of school now, or you will be out soon. How do you keep growing? So you don't, you know, plateau and, and park someplace. Yeah. Sometimes you forget those things, but more often than we'd like to admit. <laughs> more often than we'd like to admit. So 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 take us now to um take us now to California. Take us take us out to LA. Okay. 
you move from Miami to Houston, where you do some gigging for a while. Yeah. Very then, important time. Very important period. So through there, you're, you're doing arranging. You're doing some comp- composing. You're gigging on the horn. You're gigging on the piano. You're basically teaching, teaching too. Okay. Yeah. You're doing pretty much everything there is to do. And then you, get, then you decide, okay, I'm, I, if not now, when? Yeah, that's basically it. And um, I had some uh, prodding there from Nelson. Uh, Nelson was was in Houston. Nelson Hat was in Houston when I was there, but he had been in LA for many years. He'd been on the road for many years. Um, I, he's one of the most interesting cats I ever ran across uh, out here, and one of the best people as well. Yeah, Nelson. Um, for those who don't know, Nelson Hat was a, a wonderful trumpet player um, who we lost way too soon. Yeah, many years. Um, he 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 died of an illness, right? I uh, had a stroke. Uh, oh, at, a very, at, a, at a very young age and uh, perforated anyway. It was a whole thing. So. Yeah, I mean, but it, it happened overnight. I mean, I, I remember doing doing gigs with Nelson, and I remember him him telling me about you. Yeah. I think even before you got there. Yeah, he yeah. was a real he was a real uh, mensch. You know, he really was. Uh, his wife at the time was a wonderful woman. That she was ill, and that's why he moved to Houston. He was from there. Um, right. I met him on a on a Houston Pops uh, rehearsal at the Union. There, I, I'm sitting there. Uh, I moved to Houston because I won a job with a brass quintet, and um, which just tells you I had a different era that you could actually take a job with a brass quintet and move to a city and make make a part of a living playing in a brass quintet. I don't know of any situation like that anymore. Well, there there are still a couple. Believe it or not, the Canadians are still out there. Oh well, I'm not talking about them. <laughs> Canadian, right. but, I'm not talking about the 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 world famous ones, but just move to a town and actually anchor your living with a, a small chamber music group. And we weren't even the only one in Houston at the time. There were uh, there were a number of them because uh, Nelson was in one of them. And long story short, I there was another horn player just going down the row, pointing out who everybody was in the orchestra that I just moved there. And she said his name and then moved on. And I went, wait, 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 go back. Was Nelson Hat, like Woody Herman band, Nelson Hat? And she went, yeah, that, that, do you know him? I said, I, I know who he is. And um, we became real pals. He became a, a real advisor. So he's the one that said, if you're going to do California, you got to go. You got to go because you're starting to you're starting to settle in, you're getting gigs, you're starting to get some gigs that are the types of things that might uh, keep you in a place. And if you wanna try the film thing, there's no guarantee you're gonna have any success, um, but there's a guarantee you won't if you don't go. So, um, and his wife had passed, um, and so he was ready to give LA another shot. And so he, uh, we came out at the same time, we split a house for a handful of years and um, he, he was just a selfless, um, amazing cat. He introduced me to everybody. He said, I don't have any pull with anybody, but I can definitely make the introductions. And I can. And he did a good it. job of it. He did. And he got me into some sessions just so I could sit and observe, sit in the booth and hang out. That was a, a great time to be here then, too, because there was still a lot of live TV going on. There was a lot of jingle sessions still going on. There were several stages active in town at the time. So you could you could meet a lot of folks in short order and then see what kind of work you could drum up. It's like well, that's, that's how we met. I th- yes. I'm pretty sure we met, we met at, a, at a session yeah. at one point. Yeah. I can't remember if you were playing or if you were there. Uh, first time I was just there. Um, Ralph Grierson brought me to a lot of dates and I would sub for him and some stuff um, on piano because I had a pretty strong uh, piano reel. Mike Lang used to bring me to, to dates. Um, so I, I really got to know those two keyboard guys. Um, and they don't get much nicer than those two guys. No. And they were so busy back then, you know, with all the racks of synths and samplers, you know, that was still the way that worked. And there was a lot of TV. So 
it was a little less politically charged to bring a newcomer to a TV date. Yeah. A film date generally. So I went to Simpsons dates and um, Heat of the Night dates and blah, 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 all these, all these sessions. And um, a little bit easier to get a shot at maybe subbing on one of those every now and then as well. And then um, same thing with Horn. You know, you, you, I met um, because of Nelson, you meet Alan and Rick and it's all the guys, all the guys who were doing it then. And then you get a chance to pick up a small thing here and a small gig there. And well, we, we did some work together. We did. We did commercials. I know together. Um, and I, to part of our conversation, we had you about not being, you cannot sustain top level activity in, in every field that you do at every, uh, all the time. Um, I was given a, a couple of options uh, fairly early on. People sat me down. What, do you, what are you here for? Are you, are you going to write? Are you going to play piano? Are you going to play horn? What are you going to do? Because the, the implied part of that question is there's no way you're going to do it all at the top, at top levels all the time. There's just, there's no way to sustain it. You can't even be in a spotting session and a scoring session at the same time. You can't, you can't do everything all the time. So what is it you want to do? And um, my answer always, especially early on, was I came here to write. And that's going to be a very long road. And so the, the playing that I want to do, I hope will support that. And, um, and I'd love to work uh, when I can, if you'll, if you'll have me, if you'll let me in. And at the time, there was a lot of commercial work. So while the film dates were going on and the more established players were working on their bigger projects, I used to get a stack of blue checks like that every couple weeks. Love from, those bangles. From commercials, you know, and so, and that was fine. That was fine. I felt like, you know, the work I'm putting into my instruments, this probably makes sense. You know, I'm not necessarily putting the effort into getting um, these bigger dates because people get those dates because that's what they do all the time. That's what they do. That's what they're best at. And um, there was a, I had a, a pretty decent balance for a while as you never know when work's just going to go away. The jingles all went away uh, for everybody. They're just, they're pretty much gone. But I feel pretty sure the first, the, the main work that you and I did was probably on commercials but we did play on that Shirley Horn record. Indeed, well. we did. Although I was not there for the for the day. Oh, you weren't too <laughs> for the, the live show. I wasn't there that day. Oh, yeah, I that was on that uh, record, and that was a that meant so much to me to uh, be a part of that. You knew it. it, it you know, it, it's a funny thing, John. You know this. Um, you know, as I know this, it's like you, you, you don't really know what you're going to do when you walk in, you know, right. you don't know what you're in store for. And, you know, there are times when you walk in and you, you just kind of sit there and you begin to play and you start hearing the music and you go, Oh, wait a minute. This is something a little more special. There's something, this one has a different vibe to it. And I could probably count that on probably I, I could probably count those moments maybe on both hands in the 35 years that I actually did that work. Yeah. Uh, but that Shirley Horn album was was definitely one of them. Just magic. Just yeah. Magic. I mean Johnny Mandel's arrangements and it, it, it's like that was it. It was it was as good as a record can get from a from a a performance slash arranging. The just the vibe of the whole thing was was really something. Yeah, I'll just share with you. I'll just share with you one other moment that I have in my own life with that was when I walked in. Um, uh, I, I was called to go do a Natalie Cole session, mm -hmm. and little did I know I walked in, and uh, I think it was a Capitol. Um, I walked in, and okay, it's a Natalie Cole record. I put on my headphones, and they're playing a track in there in my headphones, and I'm hearing Nat sing unforgettable sure and i thought oh my god and i realized what it was we were going to do unforgettable with natalie and she yeah. was going to sing a duet with her father 
I, think I, that played, that, I played that TV special uh, about two years later. They did a PBS special on that from the pass from the um, Pasadena Civic. Pasadena Civic, right? And I played that TV special with right her, her a number of times, but I was really happy to get to play that book. Yeah, it, it was just lovely. It was just lovely stuff. And again, a magical album. There, there, there haven't been that many. Right. Just there haven't been that many. Uh, yep. Broadway album is one, you know, Barbara's album. They're, they're just a few, you know. Right. Um, Did you ever hear her classical Barbara record? Sure. And uh, my folks loved it. Both of them loved it. I, I, the little, the little two and a half minute uh, little snippet that she does from Carmina Burana in Trutina is as beautiful a performance of that as I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. That's something special. There's a, uh, um, uh, Klaus Ogerman tune on there that I love. Uh, I loved you in silence. I forget who wrote the poem. Uh, the Pavan is on there. Do, 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 do. Right. Yeah, it's an amazing record. Amazing. Yep. I, I heard that, played the grooves off of that as a kid. <laughs> loved it. Well, if you ever want to borrow mine, I still have grooves on mine. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So, so tell us a little bit about, you know, I mean, the, 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 you got, uh, you were you were um, you were acknowledged by I forget was it ASCAP? Please help me out here because or the film and television and so on for three of the years that you wrote for Burn Notice. Yeah, four actually. That's you can see them on the. Uh, <laughs> oh yes, look at there, there, there. <laughs> what um, what that, was what was that acknowledgement? Well, mainly the ASCAP and BMI awards, and it's a it's a great thing is not so much that, wow, you wrote some really cool music for that show. It's your show is a hit. Uh, those awards are usually given out for, uh, in recognition that your show was a top, was a top ratings maker, um, which is more important than being told you're doing good writing to me, because if you're writing for a hit, the odds are you get to keep doing it you know, that you, you get to keep writing. Right. Uh, yeah. You always want your show to be top, top five. If you can. And you want to keep getting paid. You want to keep getting paid because you never know when it's going to be gone. You know, shows get canceled. Um, producers move on to projects where they don't need you or they are going to try something else. You, you just, there's no guarantees. And I, I learned that early on that uh, every win is followed by a string of potential losses, you know, so never, you don't get cocky and you don't uh, get crazy, you know, even when you get on a, a good run, whether I've, I've worked with a lot of other well-known composers kind of more in the shadows on TV shows and some movies thing like this. So I got to watch other really successful people do the ups and downs. You, you want to finally get on a permanent up or plateau on an up, but you can't, you're never guaranteed of that. And as a composer, you're always working for someone else. So the fate of your clients becomes your fate as well. Um, if your guys are successful and you continue to get along and have a good relationship, then you work. If they hit a dry patch, then uh, right. You better not have bought that uh, eight series, you know, just, yeah. Yeah, you don't want to have long-term payments on things when, uh, you know, when you're beholding to others. Gosh, Siri. Uh, yeah, it's, that's exactly right. And, and TV especially, and especially now, everything is so, um, everything moves so fast now. Shows are in, they're out, they're in, they're out, they're in, they're out. Um, thousand new shows premiere one month and 700 of them have vanished uh, by the next month. You know, it's a, it's a very different so, kind of business. So I would, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to just kind of share something with everybody here if I can figure out technologically how to do this. But um, one of the things that I love about, about John is just, he's just so he just, has this this streak of ingenious thought process, you know? I mean, he does he does so many cool different things, and uh, I I gotta see if I can find this. Um, but I want to share a screen 
let's see here. Oh, here we go. Okay, so now I've got that. Now I have to share the screen. So I'm sharing the screen here. God, I hope I get this right. Me and technology. Okay, here we go. Oh, turn on share computer sound. There, share. How's that? What do you see, John? Uh, that's the give it one screen. Okay, so guys, check this out. It's two minutes and 30 seconds. You got to hear this. This is ridiculous. And he did this during the pandemic. There you have it, folks. His love for Maynard comes through on that like just gangbusters. That's thick <laughs> good. I, I Mario just, burns fat, right? Oh, wait, no. whoa, whoa. Mario <laughs> actually burns Hold on. Hold on. I got to figure out how to get rid of that. Okay. Hit pause. <laughs> what the heck is going on? See, I, I told it was you. Play in the next video, whatever that is. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, that was actually, uh, that was going to be Maynard's version of it. Right, which is. So yeah. All right. So, you know, I mean. That was uh, a lot of fun. That was my first green screen project, which you can see behind me. It looks like I, I robbed a, you know, a photographer shop. Um, I had been doing a few little projects using just a webcam just for fun during the whole lockdown kind of thing. And I thought, you know what? I, I don't know anything about green screen except that it exists and, and why it exists. Why don't I spend a hundred bucks and get a screen and I had a better camera and see if I can, see if I can pull that off. Cause I figured the photography skill is maybe something else I could, you know, make a little cash with down the line if I have to. And it was a lot of fun. I'm in here. Luckily, that one only had three costume changes. I did a project later that had eight costume changes. And I'm in here putting on hats and changing coats and putting on stuff. And, um, and he doesn't have a crew doing it for him. He's pretty no, much. No, no, it's all me. It's just, it's awful. <laughs> this is not a huge room. So it got a little uh, cramped in here at one point. But, so uh, and I've always loved that tune, and um, you know, I just figured let's let's see if I can make this work. And it gives me a, a reason to practice 
too, which you know. I just wanted to. I just want to know how you were able to play that well upside down <laughs> and spinning and spinning. God, man, <laughs> and and uh, and you you didn't break any teeth in the process. That's, that's right. That's all my bat yoga uh, practice that I do. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> um, something tells me this is not going to be the last time we do this because there's so much more ground to cover on so many different things. Um, but uh, would you be willing to come back and uh, talk some more? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we didn't even get into my my main world, which is all the the techno technical film, you know, TV stuff. I, We're going to get there. I have a. Uh, what I'm standing in front of is behind me. What I'm sitting in front of is that. That's what's in front of me. <laughs> so um, it's, like I said, it's, it's juggling, the, juggling the worlds. One of the things that, that I got out of Miami was just that. Don't set anything down. If you have a strength musically, if you play piano, hang on to it. If you sing, Keep singing. If you play horn, keep your chops up best you can while you are singing. You know, but one of the main tools for my business, you know, you try to keep, even if you can't be world class at each one at all times, stay within reach of, of what you consider a personal best. So if you need to move your emphasis from one to the other, you can get there. Um, and, um, the, otherwise, you could be consumed by especially the, the computer tech thing. And as much as that's a tool that I use all the time for my work, it's kind of my least favorite of all the stuff. I really love the, the piano. I really love the horn. I really love working with um, real players, real singers. And even though uh, on many of my projects, I, I simply can't. I don't have the budget. I don't have the time. Um, it's still the world that I love best. Um, not the technical, so much the computer thing, but um, the the program I had at Miami prior to most of this technology, this stuff didn't exist. It was on its way when I was there. And thank God uh, that program was all about never stop um, picking up something new, never stop learning. Even if it's learning how to make goofy green screen videos and play it upside down. Well, part of the curriculum now is that everybody's got to learn. Um, uh, everybody has to learn a DAW. Everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. They've got that, you know, all of my students have to learn how to, have to, learn how to utilize a DAW. Yeah. You know, and in this particular point where we're at um, uh, with, the, uh, with the virus and with, um, you know, all the, all the limitations of actually being face-to-face, -face, it's a whole different world that, that we're in now. Mm -hmm. And it, it creates, as, as you have wonderfully, you know, pointed out, um, you, the, the, the room for creativity is maybe greater now inside of this isolation area than maybe it has been in a long time, just for, for no other reason other than just in, in, in some people's case necessity so they don't go nuts. Right. And, and just, you know, letting out some of that, that creative talent and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's a, it's a big challenge and we'll pick that up. I think the next time, are you willing to do another one with me? Absolutely. Yeah. This, this is great. I, I, I love it. This is, this is part one. We'll probably do part two. God knows. Maybe we'll do a part three. Who knows? I love it. That's great. One of them has to be happy hour. Oh, you bet. You bet. <laughs> I'll bring a bottle and you bring a bottle. There you go. <laughs> there you go. And I know what you're going to bring and I'm going to bring the same thing. Uh, you know? Are you going to bring a Pinot or a Chardonnay? I'll bring a Pinot. Okay. I'll bring a Chardonnay then. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> We're talking about Williams Sellium Wines, which yeah. is one of California's great uh, Burgundian winemakers. One of our treasures, I think. Yep. <laughs> So anyway, John Dixon, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it very much. And I look thank forward too, to the man. next one. And, um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll talk some more music and some more shop and uh, we'll talk some more wine. That sounds good to me. All right. Thanks for having me, Rick. It's been a lot thank of fun. Thank you, buddy. All, All right. right. We'll talk again soon. See you later. Okay. Bye-bye.